Well, turn with me, if you will, to the book of Joel. Last week we looked at chapter one of this incredible short three-chapter book that's full of so much information. The subtitle could almost be the day of the Lord. It's a phrase that occurs five times in these three chapters, and Joel really focuses on that very theme. Um, Montague Mills made this comment. He said, Joel was probably the first of the so-called writing prophets. So this book provides valuable insight into the history of prophecy, particularly as it furnishes a framework, that's key, a framework for the end times, which is faithfully followed by all subsequent scripture. God started a new work with the writing of Joel, that of preparing the human race for the end of this temporal era, and thus gave an outline of his total plan. Later prophets, including even our Lord, would only flesh out this outline, but in keeping with the divine nature, or sorry, the divine nature of true scripture, never found it necessary to deviate from this, the initial revelation. I think that's a really insightful comment, because it really does give us the idea that Joel was kind of the first of all of these prophets whose books we have in the Old Testament. And that which he gives us is like the framework. And the prophets that came afterwards, people like Hosea that we've recently studied, and Isaiah and Jeremiah, all they did was add color to this. They filled in more information. But Joel gives this incredible outline. And it's no surprise, therefore, as we saw in Hosea, God says that he speaks using similitudes, types, shadows, that we find that the book of Joel seems to be based upon the last three feasts of Israel. We mentioned in detail last week, the, the first three feasts of Israel. These were real historical events, of course, during the, the time of the Passover, the Exodus from Egypt, the wilderness wanderings. All these feasts were given to Israel to commemorate real historical events. And yet, there's a prophetic application. Each of these feasts look forward to something that was yet to come. Now, the first three find their fulfillment during Passion Week. That's the week leading from uh, Palm Sunday up through to the crucifixion and then the resurrection. And of course, Passover was fulfilled as Jesus is killed on the 14th of the month as the Passover lamb was to be killed, becoming our Passover. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. The next day as Jesus' body is put in the ground. It becomes the evening for the Jews. It's the next day as it gets to six o'clock in the evening. And then the Feast of First Fruits was the Sunday. Always the feast of first fruits would always fall on a Sunday, and of course, that particular week was the day Jesus rose from the dead, and Jesus becomes the first fruits of those that rise from the dead. So, those feasts, real events, but they were models in a sense, looking forward to what would be accomplished. We saw also last week that the feast of weeks or harvest, Pentecost, Shavuot, uh, the same uh, different titles for the same feast. They were fulfilled with the birth of the church. And of course, we're given that information, actually, at the beginning of the book of Acts, chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, or was being fulfilled. It really is another way of understanding that. There's another implication, and we're not going to go into it in detail. We have looked at this at times past, and no doubt we will in the future, that there's an implication that the rapture may also occur on the Feast of Pentecost. Now, I'm not date setting, I'm not trying to, but it's just all, all the things that God does seem to fit a pattern and a model. So there's a strong possibility, but we'll leave it at that. And then, of course, we've got the last three feasts. And these are the ones that are really of interest to us in this study of the book of Joel, because the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles have had as yet no prophetic fulfillment in history. There's nothing we could point to and say, well, that was the fulfillment of those feasts. But then we look forward. And if 
if that idea that I just thrown out there, and again, Acts 17.11 applies, search the scriptures daily to see whether these things are so. You know, don't just take my word for it. Check scripture yourself. If we've already seen, of course, through um, Passover and bread and first fruits at the time of the, the crucifixion and so on, and then the birth of the church and subsequent rapture of the church, following on, even chronologically from that, you'd expect these other feasts to follow after that, which seems to be what happens. Now, in Joel chapter 1, what we looked at, that which we looked at last week, it seems to give Israel's history from Egypt, the time of Egypt, the birth of the nation, if you like, to the time of the tribulation. Just one chapter, a, a, a framework, a summary of Israel's history. I'll go through it again in a second, just briefly, just to remind you. And then we have the Feast of Trumpets. And Joel chapter 2 verse 1 begins with this blowing of trumpets. It seems to be analogous to that which we read in Revelation chapter 8 and chapter 9. And then there's the idea of fire, which obviously symbolizes judgment and so on. And then the Feast of Atonement, which seems to link to that time when Israel will be brought back to the Lord. They'll be made one again. That, again, I'm sure you've heard, at one is the idea of atonement. God making us, recon- or reconciling us to himself. And there's lots of details in and amongst the Feast of Atonement, specifically that a scapegoat would flee to the wilderness. What happens during the time of tribulation? Well, Israel will flee to the wilderness. There's lots of these little ties that you start to see as you go into this. And then finally, the Feast of Tabernacles, when it would seem to be at the time of the second coming, Jesus will return and literally tabernacle among us, dwell among us, will set up his kingdom and will rule from Jerusalem for that period that we refer to as the millennium. And during this time, uh, Israel will be under great duress. And we read in chapter 3, and we'll look at this Lord willing, next week, um, the details of what we typically refer to as Armageddon. So we'll look at that next week. Now, just a very quick review of chapter 1, just so that we kind of get the, the, the springboard into what we're going to look at this morning. Verse 1, God speaks. That's what we saw last week. And the question we asked was, you know, who's ready to hear? In, chapter, in verse 2 and 3 of chapter 1, it's really the story of riches to rags. Not rags to riches, as we often talk about, but Israel, this nation who were betrothed to God, espoused to God, and this wonderful relationship in the wilderness ended up getting to the time of judges, where everyone did that which seemed right in their own eyes. And then to the time of the kings, where they rejected God ruling over them, and they wanted a man to rule over them, and then those kings led them into idolatry. This wonderful beginning just went downhill. And ultimately, the Assyrian captivity for the northern kingdom of Israel, and the Babylonian captivity for Judah, and then subsequently the Romans came, as we see all these things. You know, and verse 4 goes on, speaking of this utter destruction. Now, we said last week that the context of this was that Joel had just witnessed this utter devastation by a plague of locusts upon the land. And we talked about that in detail last week. But he also, the wording he uses takes it far beyond just that event. It was that event that gave him the springboard to talk about all of these things. And really, that becomes Israel's wake-up call. That God is going to be a God that brings judgment. He's not going to sit passively by as people reject him. Verses 6 and 7 seem to be an allusion to Rome that ultimately came, and of all the nations that came and subdued Israel, they were by far the worst. And then verse 8 of chapter 1, Israel's rejection of their Messiah. They, they should have been betrothed to their Messiah, and yet they killed their Messiah. Verse 9, we find that sacrifice was stopped, which we know occurred in AD 70. 
at the hand of the Romans as the temple is destroyed and Jews are forced to flee. And that ultimately is concluded in AD 132 as Emperor Hadrian so disgusted with the Jews that he forces them out of the land and has Jerusalem plowed over. Verse 11 and 12 of chapter 1, we then get into that worldwide display of the shame that the nation experiences. As people look on and say, well, wasn't this the nation that God had chosen? Verse 13, then we seem to have the abomination of desolation in view. There's suddenly sacrifices clearly working again, allowed again, but then he's withholding. They're told to stop. And it's a time to flee. Everyone is to, to put their garments on, get ready to go. Verse 14, then we have this seemingly parenthesis. And we're going to look at this in detail uh, at the end of this morning. But the elders are called to gather into the house of the Lord and pray. And I just threw out there last week, is this a picture of the rapture of the church? And subsequently the mandate that the church will be given. Hold those thoughts because we're going to come back to that. In verse 15 then, we see the day of the Lord introduced and the great tribulation begin. In verse 16 to 18, Israel then are at that point where they're forced to flee. As looking forward, Antichrist is going to make it impossible for them to stay in the land. And then 19 and 20, the end of chapter 1, Desperate Israel will then seek refuge in the wilderness of Edom. Now, those last three verses specifically, we're now, I believe, going to see expounded as we go into chapter 2. So chapter 1 almost is the entire panorama of Israel's history laid out in one chapter. Just 20 verses that seem to give us the whole history based around historical events, but and yet looking forward to all that was to come. So let's jump into chapter 2. As I said already, I believe now we're going to see the fulfillment of these three feasts, starting with the Feast of Trumpets. And we start. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for is nigh at hand. Uh, This clearly defines the time frame we're looking at. This isn't any old period of history. This is looking at the day of the Lord. It's a phrase that occurs repeatedly in the Old Testament, and it always refers to this time of judgment that is coming upon the earth. And the other prophets that follow after Joel give us more detail about this. But Joel himself says it's going to be a day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness as the morning spread upon the mountains. A great people and a strong. There has not been ever the like, neither shall be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. Joel talking about something so unbelievable, but he's saying this is going to happen. And it's going to come upon the whole world. This is a fire devoureth before them, and behind them a burning, a flame burneth. The land is as the garden of Eden before them, behind them a desolate wilderness. Yea, and nothing shall escape them. Now, once again, the context that Joel is speaking in is in the aftermath of this devastating locust plague. And as we said last week, locusts, when they go through, they don't just take the, the green stuff on the surface, they dig down, they actually take the roots out and everything. The locust plague can be really quite devastating to the crops and therefore to the economy and and so on. But this is something even deeper than that because it's saying that the land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them is just utter devastation. Now, he's speaking as though the devastation he's describing is yet future. So he's using this real historical thing that has just taken place to speak to his generation, his nation, 
and subsequently to all those who would read this, the Lord inspiring these words in Scripture, to warn us of what is coming. And so thus the actual locust plague was to serve as an object lesson of the reality that his prophecy was not just some fanciful ramblings. And I need to make this point because we can look at these things and think, yeah, but that wouldn't really happen. Something so devastating to the earth. Well, let me just throw a few things out there to underline these things. I just want to just read a little bit from Revelation chapter 8. The third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp, and it fell upon a third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of waters. And the name of the star is called Wormwood. And the third part of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. Now, people read these things, and you know, surely that's just too fanciful, isn't it? I mean, it's very pretty kind of language and dramatic and so on. But the idea of this being a real history, a real event that is to take place, yeah, you know, well, we look at this and surely this sounds just too crazy, doesn't it? An angel sounding, this star falling from heaven, burning like a lamp, a meteorite or whatever it is. And a third part of the rivers and the fountains are, are made bitter and people can't drink from them. I mean, that, that's just, just impossible, isn't it? Well, let me just remind you of an event that took place on the 26th of April, 1986. In Russia, there was an explosion of this nuclear power plant, and it was devastating. Interestingly, the Russian word for wormwood is translated Chernobyl. Did you know that? That's an interesting link, isn't it? And when this Chernobyl reactor problem occurred... Many people died, and the surrounding water supplies were contaminated. So, you know, it is possible for an event to take place that would cause the contamination of water for a wide area and for many people to die. Now, I'm not saying that was the fulfillment of that prophecy, but I think the Lord allowed that to show us that it's possible, that these things really can happen. My point is that Joel is talking about some incredible events that the natural man would look at this and go, that that would never happen. What I'm saying to you is these things can happen when we've seen them happen. What about this? In Revelation 18, after these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven having great power and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice saying, Babylon, the great is fallen, is fallen and has become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Therefore shall her plagues come, just jumping on to verse 8, in one day, notice this, It's talking about this destruction, this incredible destruction. It's going to come on this city in one day. Death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire. For strong is the Lord God who judges her. Uh, Notice what we're told as a result of this, this city that's going to be destroyed. The kings of the earth have committed fornication and lived deliciously, where they've been made wealthy and rich because of her. With her shall bewail her and lament for her when they shall see the smoke of her burning. And it goes on, it says, standing afar off for fear of her torment. So they stand back, they keep a distance away, saying, alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour, notice again, time frame, is thy judgment come. And the merchants of the earth, that's the people who trade, the people who buy and sell commodities and so on, they shall weep and mourn over her. It's going to be great sadness, for no man buyeth their merchandise any more. It's going to have an incredible impact on stocks and shares and trade and so on. I mean, again, isn't this a bit too fanciful? You know, to suggest that an event could take place, that some prominent city in the world could be hit in such a way that it affects 
trade and everything else, and people look on in astonishment, and it happens so quickly. Well, let me remind you of the events of September the 11th, 2001. We had the Twin Towers fallen, fallen. Again, in under an hour, both towers devastated. The merchants of the earth wept. I'm not saying that's the fulfillment of that prophecy. What I'm saying is it just shows that these things really can take place. We live in a world where we're so used to everything tomorrow being the same as it was today. That's what we expect. We expect to wake up and tomorrow we kind of know the plan and how everything's going to run. And when something happens that we weren't expecting, it kind of throws us. But the Bible warns us that these things are going to be staggering when they come. The point I'm making here is that we've already seen events, and there's many more that we could highlight, that show us that the things that the Bible speaks about are not fanciful by any means. They really can and will take place. Again, this fire is going to devour before them. And I believe this is not just looking back to what had happened. This is prophetically looking forward. A flame burneth the land, the garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Yea, and nothing shall escape them. Again, Joel's hearers knew that this was not fanciful because they'd just seen it, they just witnessed it. They'd experienced, if you like, the dress rehearsal of what was coming. And then look at this, the appearance of them. Now, this is seemingly looking at these so-called locusts that Joel is, in his vision, giving us. The appearance of them is, is the appearance of horses, and as horsemen, so shall they run, like the noise of chariots in the tops of mountains. Shall they leap like the noise of a flame of fire that devours the stubble, and a strong people set in battle array. Before their face, the people shall be much pained. All faces shall gather blackness. They shall run like mighty men. They shall climb the wall like men of war. They shall march every one on his own ways. They shall not break their ranks. Neither shall one thrust another. They shall walk every one in his own path. And when they fall upon the sword, they shall not be wounded. Well, now this sounds a little bit scary. This is way beyond just regular natural locusts. This is talking about something coming upon the earth that's utterly terrifying, and even if they fall upon a sword, it's not going to hurt them. Some sort of creature that the Lord is saying through Joel is going to come upon the earth. That sounds pretty terrifying. They shall run to and fro in the city. They shall run upon the wall. They shall climb upon the houses. They shall enter in at the windows like a thief. I don't know about you. We shut our windows at night because we don't want the spiders to come in. This is way worse than that. This is something that you cannot prevent. And Joel is saying these things are going to come upon the earth. And notice again the context. The earth shall quake before them. The heavens shall tremble. The sun and the moon shall be dark. The stars shall withdraw their shining. Now we're starting to recognize some of the language. Jesus uses this kind of language when he speaks in Matthew 24 and elsewhere. The Lord shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for he is strong, that execute his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? That's what Joel says. Now, some years later, Isaiah makes these comments. How leave for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore shall all hands be faint, and every man's heart shall melt. And they shall be afraid. Pangs and sorrows shall take hold of them. They shall be in pain as a woman that travaileth. As a woman is about to give birth. They shall be 
amaze one another, their faces should be as flames. Behold, the day of the Lord, again that phrase, cometh cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, and here's the purpose of it, to lay the land desolate. Just as Joel was saying, Isaiah picking up the idea and building on it. To lay the land desolate, he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. This is the purpose of the tribulation. For the stars of heaven and the constellations, now the same idea that Joel was saying, thereof, shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. And I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. That's what Isaiah says of this time that's coming. Joel clearly is referring, or they're talking about one of the same event. Now, to try and help you understand some of these things, sometimes visually it's easy to see how these things play out. The Bible speaks of this period of seven years that is to come upon the earth. It's the last seven years of a prophecy that Gabriel gives to Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. We've had the first part of that prophecy completely fulfilled in detail to the very day. The last seven years have yet to be fulfilled. And Jesus breaks it down using the expressions, the beginning of sorrows and then the great tribulation. And they're both three and a half year periods. In fact, 42 months, which is three and a half years based upon a 360 day year. We won't get into that this morning, but there's reasons for that. Or 1,260 days, the same time frame, three and a half years. So we two, three and a half year periods. The first part's bad. The second part is really bad. It starts in the book of Revelation with seven seals. As each, there's a scroll. Seems to be the title deed for the earth. As each seal is taken off this scroll, certain events take place. Then we find that there's seven trumpets. And this is why this is significant in the book of Joel, because it seems to be mapping this time frame now. When these trumpets are, are sounding, the events that Joel is speaking about are being played out on earth. That's followed by seven thunders that the Apostle John, who recorded Revelation for us, doesn't give us the details. He said that he was told not to write anything about the seven thunders, which makes that quite scary. And it's followed finally by seven vials or seven bowls of wrath that are poured out. There'll be two witnesses that the Lord will raise up to preach to the world from Jerusalem for the first three and a half years. As an aside, I believe there'll be Moses and Elijah. It's prophesied that both Moses and Elijah would return before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Then they're going to be killed, brought back to life, and then taken up to the throne in heaven. There's also going to be 144,000 Jews. won't be Jehovah's Witnesses. There will be 12,000 Jews from each tribe of Israel. And seemingly they'll be given the job of evangelizing the world. they also will be taken out of this world. There'll be a number of people that will come to know the Lord. We refer to them typically as tribulation martyrs. They're taken out. I don't believe they'll be part of the church because the church will be taken out and raptured before this seven years begins. But after the church is gone, when these things start to, to come to pass, those people that you've spoken to and shared your faith with, they'll suddenly go, well, maybe they weren't crazy. Oh, the world's going to come up with all sorts of ideas and theories about what's happened to these millions of Christians that have suddenly disappeared. And people are being prepared for it already. I don't expect a lot of you necessarily to be familiar with it, but the Marvel franchise. I personally like the films. I think they're kind of they're fun. Um, you may not, but in the 
one of the, the films, um, Infinity War, at the end of the film, there's this villain and he causes millions of people to disappear. Now, I don't believe that the directors and the people that wrote the storyline were looking at the Bible and they were looking at other things and thinking, how can we... No, no, I just think that behind all of this, the father of lies is preparing people on planet Earth for things that are going to come. And actually through the entertainment so-called industry, for many, many years, the world is being prepared for a time of cataclysmic trouble. But you know what the world's view is? Well, we'll overcome. There's always some kind of, you know, Kevin Costner type character or um, some other, you know, hero that will save the world. That's the world's mindset. So much so that even when these things are playing out, the world will end up marching against Jesus Christ. We'll look at that in chapter 3 next week. But those tribulation martyrs, those that have come to know the Lord during this time, will also be taken out of the world. Now, given all of those things, and speaking again of this time when Joel is speaking now, I believe these trumpet judgments, I want to just jump to Revelation chapter 8. And I read some of this last week, but in context, it's worth looking at it again. Revelation chapter 8, verse 2, And I saw seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. I just want to highlight this because we're going to come back to this point. Right in the midst of these, or at the beginning of these trumpet judgments that are going on, in heaven... There's a call for the saints to pray. The incense represents the prayers of the saints. Okay, so whilst all these things are going on on earth, there's a call going out for those that are in heaven to pray. That's really significant. We can come back to that. And the smoke of the incense which came uh, with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and cast it to the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. And the seven angels, which had the seven trumpets, prepared themselves to sound. And we're not going to go through these in detail, but just to give you an idea. During this first three and a half year period of time, the seven seals all opened. And the first trumpet sounds and we find that hail and fire and blood rain down on the earth. And the third of the trees and the grass and so on is burnt up. The second trumpet sounds, and what seems to be a massive meteorite will hit the oceans. I mean, there's been all sorts of disaster films about these things and how we can, can manage to blow the, the asteroid up and Earth is saved again. Well, this one, seemingly from Revelation, is not going to be stopped. And it's a, going to affect a third of all marine life, and a third of all ships are going to be destroyed as a result. I mean, again, we've seen the effects of tsunamis and how devastating they can be. But there's other implications of this as well, because most of the oxygen from planet Earth comes from the plankton in the sea. And so if, if a third of all the marine life is dying, it's going to affect even breathing on planet Earth during this time. The third trumpet sounds, and we find that another star hits the rivers and they're contaminated. This is what we looked at with this whole Chernobyl thing. Again, I'm not saying Chernobyl's a fulfillment of this thing, but it's a model, I believe. The Lord has allowed us to show that just the possibility. This is going to be on a much bigger scale. And a third of the rivers of many men die. The fourth trumpet will sound and we're told that the third of the, the sun and the moon will turn to darkness. That's again going to have a significant effect on life on earth. And then we're going to pick it up verse 13. And behold, 
And I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe. Okay, I mean, this is, I mean, Jesus sometimes says, Verily I say unto you. Sometimes he said, I say unto you. Sometimes Jesus said, Verily I say unto you. And if he really wants to get the point across, Jesus said, Verily, verily I say unto you. Well, this angel's not just saying woe, it's woe, woe, woe. I mean, what you've seen so far, you ain't seen nothing yet. This is really going to get scary. It says, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels which are yet to sound. So now the fifth angel sounds the trumpet. And this is when, as we saw last week, what seems to be demonic locusts are released from the bottomless pit to torture men for five months and you cannot kill them. Wasn't that what Joel said of these things? They're going to come and devastate the earth. For five months, they're going to have the the sting in their tails like scorpions. Chapter 9, now, of Revelation. On the fifth angel sounded, I saw a star fall from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key of the bottom of his pit. He opened the bottom of his pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit, as the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. We said last week that when plague of locusts fly across, they can actually block out the light of the sun. They're so thick, they, they fly so tightly together. And they came out the smoke of locusts upon, uh, out of the smoke, locusts upon the earth, and unto them was given the power as of scorpions of the earth have power. And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree. So these aren't natural locusts, because that's normally what locusts would do. But only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. Well, that we already find in Revelation 7 was the 144,000. God supernaturally protected them and sealed them. Verse 5 of Revelation 9 says, And to them it was given that they should not kill them, but they should be tormented five months. So people are going to be tormented by these things. You can't kill them, and you're not going to be able to die. And the torment was as the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. And in those days shall men seek death, but shall not find it. And they shall desire to die, but death shall flee from them. Verse 7 goes on, and the shape of those locusts was like unto horses. Wasn't that what Joel said was coming? They're going to look like horses, going to sound like chariots, prepared unto battle on their heads, or as it were, a crown, crowns like gold, and their faces were as the faces of men, and they had hair as the hair of women, and their teeth were as the teeth of lions. And their two breastplates, as it were, the breastplate of iron, and the sound of their wings was the sound of chariots. Again, that's what Joel said. This is, you see these, these dovetail together so incredibly. Many horses running to battle. That's what Joel said it was going to be like. You see, all we're doing in Revelation is just putting more color onto the framework that Joel has built. And their tails like unto scorpions, and there were stings in their tails, and their power was to hurt me in five months. Back into Joel, picking up verse 11 of chapter 2. And the Lord shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for he is strong, that executes his word, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can abide? And that's where we left off. Now, I believe, we move on to the Feast of Atonement. So that's the, the fulfillment, prophetically, of the Feast of Trumpets and the trumpet judgments that will be coming upon the earth. And the Feast of Atonement was a feast, of course, one of the seven feasts we mentioned earlier. We'll look briefly in Leviticus in a second. But Joel chapter 2, verse 12 to 14, and 18 to 32, there seems to be a parenthesis in between that, and I'll explain in a moment. 
Revelation 12 verse 6 speaks of Israel's flight to the wilderness. And Zechariah chapter 12 and 13 seem also to detail this time. Let's just think about the feast itself for a second. Leviticus 23 gives us the, the summary of all these uh, seven feasts. And Leviticus 16 is the chapter that details specifically this feast, the Day of Atonement. And the Lord, shall, uh, the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Also on the tenth day of the seventh month there shall be a day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation unto you, and you shall afflict your souls. Okay, so it's a day that's going to be a day of affliction for the Jews. And offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Fire is emblematic of judgment. And you shall do no work in that same day. Speaks of a, a time when work will not be possible. For it is a day of atonement to make an atonement for you before the Lord your God. What was the purpose of that? It was setting them right with God. That was the whole idea of this Feast of Atonement, the historical application. Prophetically, exactly the same. Going back to our seven years of tribulation, the church is going to be raptured, we believe, before the seven years begin for many, many reasons from Scripture. The temple is going to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. Jesus, Paul, John all make reference to it. It will be rebuilt. Now, it might be rebuilt before the church is raptured. We might get to see it. It could happen any time. There's all sorts of interesting things going on. There's questions being asked about whether the Dome of the Rock and a new temple could exist on the Temple Mount at the same time. Or it could be as a result of some act of violence that affects the Dome of the Rock that then changes the, the, the landscape there. It could be as a result of some natural event like an earthquake. The Great Rift Valley runs right the way down through Israel. So a whole number of different possibilities. But either way, one way or another, the temple will be rebuilt. And the Jews will be allowed to, re to resume their sacrifices for the first time in over 1900 years. But in the middle of the week, or middle of this seven-year period, that week is a week of years, Antichrist is going to set up an image of himself and put it in the Holy of Holies. Nebuchadnezzar chapter 3 of Daniel a dress rehearsal of this, as Nebuchadnezzar sets up this image and tries to cause everybody to worship it. Well, the same thing's going to happen. Antichrist, this charismatic world leader that's going to step onto the scene, he's going to allow the Jews to start their sacrificing again. But after three and a half years, he's going to put a stop to it. There was an incredible dress rehearsal of this in 167 BC with a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. It is it, everything took place. But it was just a dress rehearsal of what is going to happen. That led to the festival or the Feast of Hanukkah. I'm sure many of you are familiar. But as a result of this, Israel are going to be forced to flee from Israel to the land of Edom. And typically to that place, we believe, will be this place of Petra. I'm sure some of you are familiar. You've seen this city that's been carved out of the rocks. Very, very difficult to get to by natural means. And Revelation 12 says that the Lord will protect and provide for Israel there for three and a half years during this time. Now, the Feast of Trumpets, again, the first part of that, leading up to this abomination of desolation and maybe just after, that will then be followed by the Feast of Atonement, whilst Israel are then hiding in this area of Eden. By the way, it's an incredible prophecy that a lot of people miss in the Old Testament. You know, when Jacob comes back from being with uh, Uncle Laban, for 20 years he's away, 
He comes back and he's really a bit nervous about seeing Esau because last time he saw Esau, Esau wanted to kill him. So he's coming back into land. He's a little bit sheepish. So he sends sheep on ahead and cows and all sorts. And then he sends his wives and his children on ahead in the hope that's going to appease Esau. And eventually Esau sees him and there's this big embrace and everything's okay and they're all happy. And Esau says, come back to, come back with me. Come back to my place. I've got, I can provide for you. I've got everything you need and where Esau was then living. And Jacob turns around and says, yeah, I'll, I'll come to that place. I will come to your home. I'll come to Eden. But he doesn't. Was he lying? No. He was speaking prophetically. I don't even know necessarily that Jacob knew he was speaking prophetically, but he didn't go then, but he will. Jacob, Israel, the nation, will go to that place that was Esau's. That will then follow on, and this is what we'll look at next week, to the second coming, as all the nations of the world will gang up on Israel, and they'll be ready to launch an attack on Israel, who are still hiding in the wilderness. And that will then bring the second coming. Jesus will return. The Feast of Tabernacles will be the, the occasion, I believe, the, the event, the day that Jesus will return on. And Jesus will return and tabernacle among his people. Let's just carry on. Verse 12 there. For also now says the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart. Now, again, notice the change. It's rather than just talking about judgment, which we've been looking at, the Feast of Trumpets, the theme changes now, the Feast of Atonement. And the Lord is talking about restoration, reconciliation. And so the Lord says, therefore also now, says the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart, and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Who knoweth if he will return and repent, and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God. Again, this is all dovetailing. It speaks of that feast of atonement, that idea of reconciliation with God, and God is speaking to his people of that. Now, Joel chapter 2, verses 15 through 17 seem to be a parenthesis, and I'm going to come back to that, so we're going to skip this. We'll come right back at the end, and you'll see why. So we carry on with this idea of the feast of atonement, picking up verse 18. Then will the Lord be jealous for his land, and pity his people. Yea, the Lord will answer and say unto his people, notice what God is going to do? Behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil. God's going to provide for them. Just like he did in the wilderness, the manna, but now they're in hiding in Edom, and God is going to provide for them. And you shall be satisfied therewith, and I will no more make you a reproach among the heathen. God is going to undo all the Antichrist and the kingdoms of this world had tried to do. But I will remove... Far off from you, the northern army, and will drive him into a land barren and desolate, and with his face toward the east sea, and his hinder part toward the uttermost sea. And his stink shall come up, and his ill savour shall come up, because he has done great things. God speaking of the judgment he's going to bring. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord will do great things. Be not afraid, ye beasts of the field. For the pastures of the wilderness do spring. Interesting, isn't it? That's where Israel will be forced to flee. Flee to. And the Lord is saying that the pastures of the wilderness are going to spring. The tree beareth the fruit, the fig tree and the vine, both types of Israel, do yield their strength. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. 
And the floors shall be full of weeds and the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. Ultimately, when Israel are back in their land, the Lord will bless them abundantly. And people are going to want to go to Jerusalem. They're going to want to come to this city. They're going to want to come and see Jesus. And Jews are going to be revered because people will recognize that they were the people that God chose. Though they have made so many mistakes, they didn't represent God as they were supposed to. Yet they were still the nation through whom God gave us his word, the written word, and gave us his word as in the Messiah. And I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten, and the cankworm, and the caterpillar, and the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among you. And you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God that has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never be ashamed. And you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and none else, and my people shall never be ashamed. The Lord is going to take away that shame, and they are going to know their God. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, speaks of that time that Israel, I believe, right in the midst of this hiding, that they will cry out to God, and they will look upon me whom they've pierced, and they will mourn. And they will recognize that Jesus is their Messiah. And as part of this outplaying of the Feast of Atonement, they will be reconciled to God. And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. It speaks of something new, something fresh, something wonderful. Now, of course, Peter quotes from this on the day of Pentecost, signaling that we are already in the end times. That we're just waiting for these things to play out. And also upon the, the servants and upon the handmaids in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Just as the church was something new and something fresh. So when the millennium starts and Israel are allowed or are able to come back into the land, it will be an incredible time of blessing for them. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. So the Lord promises all these things. Again, you see how these things are quoted by other prophets. Even Jesus uses these ideas. That brings us to the end of the chapter, but we need to go back and look at that parenthesis. Because whilst all these things are going on, the, the trumpet judgments, all the things that are going on on the earth, Israel then forced to flee into the wilderness. And in the midst of this time, we have these few verses, verses 15 and 17. And let me read to you, and I'll leave this with you to see what you think of this. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Okay, straight away we're kind of given this time frame. It's linking it in with all these things. But Zion can be one of two places. It could be Jerusalem or it could be heaven. It's used in both, both ways in scripture. It can either be a reference to physical Jerusalem earth or it can be a reference to the spiritual Jerusalem or heaven. Now, we've already seen that, that call for those in heaven to pray, both already in Joel, we saw it in chapter 1, and we saw that in Revelation as well. There's a call to those in heaven to pray. And notice the same idea. Sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly. Gather the people, sanctify the congregation. What is there going to be? There's going to be a gathering of people together, seemingly before the throne in heaven. Assemble the elders Gather the children and those that suck the breast. This is interesting because elders can refer to those in Israel, certainly. But in Revelation chapter 5, 
The elders there are specifically the church. There's 24 elders that represent the church. The number 24, David used 24 courses to divide up the ball of priesthood. There was 24 courses of priests representing the whole priesthood of Israel. And so that number 24 already has that connotation of kind of representing more than just the, the, the small group itself. And in Revelation chapter 5, clearly the church are represented as those elders. So there's this gathering together. Is that an allusion to the rapture? Assembling of the elders before the throne, seemingly. Gather the children and those that suck the breast. Let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber. Who is the bridegroom? And then the bride out of her closet. This is strange language in the Old Testament. It's speaking of a bridegroom and of a bride. What does Paul tell us in Ephesians? That Jesus is the bridegroom. That the church is the bride. I might be wrong on this, but it seems to me that in the midst of what Israel are going through, the church are there before the throne in heaven. And the bridegroom steps forward and listen to what is the request. Let the priests, the minister, ministers of the Lord, the church is told that we're a royal priesthood. Let the priests and ministers of the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare thy people, O Lord. So this group that are praying are praying for clearly the Jews, thy people. They're called to intercede on behalf of Israel. And it's not just spare thy people, but give not thine heritage to reproach. That the heathen should rule over them. Israel will be fleeing from Antichrist to the armies of this world. And the prayer that goes up from the church, if, if I'm right with this, that the Lord is saying that the church has a responsibility to intercede, to pray for Israel, to spare them, of course, but also that the nations of this world wouldn't overcome them. They wouldn't be able to rejoice and say, we destroyed Israel. Muslims believe that they have a duty to annihilate Israel. Satan is very aware that the second coming cannot take place until Israel petition the Lord. And so Satan has a vested interest in seeing them destroyed. And the prayer that goes up from the church, if I'm writing this, is that the heathen should not rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, where is their God? You see, the world will look on and mock and say, well, God's not protecting Israel. No, no, the, the cry of the church is to pray that God will intercede so that the heathen cannot say, where is their God? We're praying that the Lord will intervene, that the Lord will act. And notice the response. Then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. As a response to the prayers of the saints before the throne. I mean, if it's not the church, who is this group? This group are, be, are being told to petition to pray for Israel. And then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. I'll leave you to mull those things over. I'll put some more comments in the notes when I send out later. Next week we'll conclude the book, Lord willing, and we finish off in chapter 3 and we'll be looking at Armageddon. Okay, let's power hearts and pray. Father, we just thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. Lord, I just thank you for the depth and the breadth of these things, Lord. We cover so much here, but Lord, speak to our hearts the truth of, Lord, what you want us to understand of these things. And Lord, what our response should be.
Father, help us to understand the urgency of the times in which we're living and how important it is that we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, that people hear the good news. Yet, Lord, also we pray for the peace of Jerusalem now, and Lord, if this is the mandate for us in the future, oh Lord, in advance we pray that the heathen will not be at a mock and say, where is their God? But that, Lord, you would stand up and show yourself strong on behalf of your people. Lord, in fulfillment of the promises that you made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Oh Lord, we just pray you impress these things upon our hearts. Speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.